Great, well welcome back. And uh, just if you want to recap on where we've got to on the, the first page of the notes, we're just now down towards the bottom. I'm going to have a look at a couple of more of the, the themes uh, from one, Ephesians 1 to 3 before we then uh, see how some of this works itself out on the ground in our lives and in our community. So should we just ask for God's help as we um, get back into the text of the Bible and for God's spirit to to help us in this task. Father, we've been thinking about the way you've blessed us supremely in your Son, Jesus Christ. We bless you, Jesus, that you are risen and exalted, the right hand of the Father. And we thank you that through your Holy Spirit you join us to Christ And you say that our identity is to be seated there with you. And we pray that you would continue to show us what that means in our lives. Thank you that you are the good shepherd and your sheep know your voice. And my prayer, Lord, as we look at the scriptures together, is that you would speak to us, to our hearts, to our lives. Help us each to hear your voice in this session and in our small group time together. We thank you for all of your goodness to us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've been saying is that under the old order in which sin and Satan have their way, And by the way, when I say sin, I don't know if you find this helpful, but I think of sin, it's a a small word, just three letters, and it's got I in the middle. And that's basically what sin is. Sin is I in the middle. It's living in God's world, but it's actually putting myself at the centre of things. And then some of the sinful behaviours that come out of that are just outworkings of that selfish attitude. So the invitation God makes to us is to choose to put him at the centre, to choose to trust him first and foremost and to die to those selfish ways in our lives. Selfish ways that, as we've been thinking, are energised by the powers and the principalities who want to keep us from all the good things that God has for us. So, back to Ephesians, Paul in chapter 2 says, uh, this is how you were, you were dead in your sins and your selfishness. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is the way you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Verse 3. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful, our selfish nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. And then we have one of the great but God of the Bible. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace we're saved. And the whole of chapter 2 really is about the reconciliation that God has made possible through Christ. And that is, of course, a reconciliation of ourselves to God, as he's just outlined there, but it's also a reconciliation with one another. And that's what the second half of chapter 2 is all about. It's, uh, in my Bible, it's headed Jew and Gentile reconciled through Christ, verses 11 to 22. 
And bear in mind the context in which Paul is writing. The greatest division in the culture at that time was the enmity between Jew and Gentile. It's probably hard for us to get our heads around how deep those divisions and alienations felt, but to take a recent example, perhaps think of Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda. And Paul is saying that Christ has destroyed the barrier, the alienation that causes these deep, deep divisions in our world. So chapter 2 and verse 14, Christ himself is our peace. He has made the two one, he's thinking of Jew and Gentile, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose in doing so was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Do you remember right at the beginning, chapter 1 and verse 10, what is God doing in the world? Where is the world heading? What is God's big plan? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And that's a unity that includes peoples who are alienated from one another. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, says, Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. I don't know what the divisions are in the community where you live. Some very real divisions in the community in East London where Emma and I live and where I work. What has God got to say about those divisions in our community when what he's doing in the world is restoring everything that's been broken? And Paul then goes on in chapter 3 to pray passionately for this church community he's writing to, to understand and to get hold of what God is doing in Christ, bringing Jew and Gentile together. And uh, I say that Paul is about to pray because chapter 3 begins for this reason. And if you look back to chapter 1 and verse 15, where Paul goes into a long uh, prayer, that begins for this reason. But it's as though Paul then has a slight sort of moment of digression. That's why, in my Bible anyway, you get a little dash at the end of verse 1 of chapter 3. And Paul pauses for a moment. Instead of getting to the prayer he's about to pray, he then says, you do know, don't you? You do know what my role in this plan of God's is. In other words, he talks about his own vocation, his own sense of understanding of the part that he is called to play in this big scheme of things that God is working out. His vocation in this mystery, which has been made known to him by revelation. He's saying that God has shown him the part that he personally is called to play in this great work of God's. And uh, in verse 6 of chapter 3, you see almost, if you like, a, a keynote verse for the whole of the letter. What is this mystery that Paul has a part to play in? This mystery is that through the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, Jew and Gentile together, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to, in our small groups, come back later to the idea of knowing our part in this big story of what God is doing in the world. And the extent to which we feel in the flow of of the part that God would have us play. But note here, please, 
Paul's understanding of the church. I began uh, this morning by saying your vision statement to be the Christ-centred family in Parsons Green. Look at Paul's understanding of the church here. (coughs) Chapter 3 and verse 10. His intention, God's intention, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he's accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying about the calling of the church? He's saying God has defeated the powers in the world through Christ, the powers that want to exacerbate these points of alienation and division in our world and in our lives. And how do we know? What is the earthly sign that God has triumphed in Christ? What's the earthly sign? Paul says it's the church. The church in its life together is the earthly sign. If you like, the church is the sign to the heavenly powers. Christ has won. Look, his victory is real. What's the sign of it? Together we are living out a life together through the cross that wouldn't be possible, that doesn't seem possible in our society. We are overcoming the deep divisions because the power of God in what Jesus has done is even greater. Jew and Gentile together in his culture. What does that look like for us today? The church is also the sneak preview. You know when you go to the cinema... And uh, before you get on to the main feature, you have a coming soon. You know, the trailers of what's, you know, what's going to be coming later on in the year, in the summer. And the church, Paul says, is meant to be that coming soon advertisement to the world around, to the community. This is where the future is headed. Where is the future headed? Unity, to bring all things in heaven and on earth to unity under Christ. And the church in its life together, through the power of the cross, is a sign to the world of where all of creation is heading. Now that's quite a view of the church, isn't it? (laughs) When I was training to become ordained and to become a leader in the church, I was at Oxford, same college as Tim, and I loved playing sport and I played cricket there for the university. And I remember one of the first training sessions I turned up to and I got talking to the guy who was the captain of the Oxford University cricket side at that time, so quite an important guy to to get in with and, you know, if I was going to have a chance to um, uh, express my sporting ambitions... And we got talking and he told me what he was studying and what he was doing and then he asked me about me and I said, well, I'm studying theology and I'm, you know, I'm training to be ordained and to, to, to work full-time in the church. And he looked at me and he paused and you could see this cloud of <laughs> incomprehension, really, I felt, on his face. And he paused and then he said the immortal words, do you have a good singing voice? <laughs> and actually, my singing voice isn't too bad, but... <laughs> His idea, I could just see the computing going on. He said, well, if you're going to church, presumably you must like standing up at the front and leading the singing and and all the things that go with that. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I thought, no, that's not why I'm primarily going into the church. (laughs) My understanding of my role in the church is that I'm called to give leadership to a group of people, a community of people who in our life together are bearing witness to the powers and the principalities Christ has won. And to say to the community around, this is where the future is heading. The unity of all things in Christ. I like singing as well. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie Newbegin, the great writer and missioner, said, how will the world believe the, at one level, let's be honest, the, at one level, apparently absurd message that a man hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago is the fundamental 
answer, solution to the needs of the world and to us personally? How would the world believe that apparently absurd message? And he said the congregation, the church, the Christian community will be the demonstration of that message in our life together. People and communities who normally remain divided by the fault lines of society, be they economic, racial, ethnic, social, political, supporters of Chelsea, supporters of Fulham, whatever the divisions are, find through the cross of Christ a greater power of reconciliation with God and with one another. That's why I don't know if you share the peace as part of your services in church. We do uh, where we are. And I know sometimes you know, people are always a bit awkward, a bit embarrassing, the peace, and you know, I hope, we get, hope this doesn't go on too long. I mean, it can be a bit like that, I know. I, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm quite a shy person, actually. I always get a bit, you know, oh, here we go, the peace. But, <laughs> but actually, it's a powerful symbol. It's a powerful sign we're expressing. It's a little moment where we express we have a unity that is a sign to the world of where things are heading and a sign to the powers and principalities. You've lost. Christ is one through his self-giving, sacrificial death on the cross. And so, finally, Paul then gets to the prayer that he was going to pray before he had a little digression to explain his own part in God's plan. And so he begins, chapter 3 and verse 14. And we know he's coming to prayer because he begins, for this reason. And let me read it to you, because this is a wonderful prayer to meditate on. Paul says... And this is in part how Emma and I have been praying for you approaching this weekend. I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What sort of love is it that Paul is praying that the church will get hold of? It's not just an individual love that will warm our hearts, although... That's part of it. But it's a love that enables a community because when he says you, in these verses, it's a plural you, you as the people of God together, a community. A love that enables you to live with different personalities and backgrounds and cultures. And I think when he says to him who's able to do immeasurably more, he's got in mind... Jew and Gentile living together as an expression of what Christ has made possible in a way that the culture cannot help but take notice of. So what is Paul's understanding of the churches he planted? What would it mean for your church to be the Christ-centred family for Parsons Green? Well, the church is the earthly sign of Christ's victory. The place where the old divisions in our own lives and in our communities energised by those powers and principalities opposed to God, are overcome through the cross. And the church is the coming soon sign to the world of where all things are heading. Where are all things heading? Chapter 1, verse 10. When the times reach their fulfilment, 
That's to say the, the return of Christ, the consummation, the new heaven, the new earth, to bring unity in all things, in heaven and on earth, under Christ. Now, if that's the big picture that Paul sketches out in chapters 1 to 3, what does that look like for us? I'm going to think of three themes before we break into small groups. We're at the halfway stage in the letter. We're much more than halfway through the talk, so don't be alarmed at that. We're at the halfway stage in the letter, so I think perhaps we should have a half-time joke. Yeah? Ready for a half-time joke? There was a football team, Saturday morning pub football team, and uh, they were struggling to find enough players to play. And uh, this is a slightly surreal joke, but they'd tried, the guys had tried to get together anyone they could to make up the numbers, and, and they just couldn't get 11 people out on the pitch. So in desperation, somebody said, well, actually, I know a, a chicken that plays a really good game of football. Uh, why, not, why not see if the chicken is available to make up the numbers? They thought, a bit unusual, we'll give it a go. Sure enough, uh, the chicken was available and said that it would be happy to uh, turn out and play. <laughs> Talking chicken, I should add, in case you hadn't spotted that. Slightly even more surreal joke. And uh, so anyway, the, the game kicks off. And actually, the chicken has a blinder of a first half. <laughs> One minute, he is back in defence, clearing uh, a header defensively from the corner like, like Rio Ferdinand. Next minute, he's in the middle of part, linking the play together like, like Wayne Rooney. Next minute, he's out wide on the right, doing some dazzling footwork and whipping in across like Cristiano Ronaldo. You may have worked out which team I particularly follow. <laughs> Basically, the, the chicken is all over the, the park the first half, has an absolutely blinding game, and referee blows for half-time, and uh, the, the players all begin to, to jog off. And, and the ref finds himself jogging alongside the chicken as they make their way back to the tunnel, you know, into the, into the dressing rooms. And the ref's pretty impressed. He says, that was a great first half. Um, you must, you covered a lot of ground. You must keep yourself pretty fit. Chicken said, well, yeah, I try to get to the gym two or three times a week. Um, <laughs> but it's not easy, uh, given the work I do. The rest said, well, well, you know, what do you do? He said, well, I'm, I'm a chartered accountant. <laughs> and immediately, immediately the ref stops, blows his whistle, everybody stops, pulls out his red card, sends the chicken off. And the players are horrified. I mean, he's been their star turn. And they, they all come rushing around the ref, you know, like they do. He said, ref, ref, what, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's, what's going on? And the ref said, lads, I'm sorry, I, I had no choice. Professional foul. <laughs> so we're at the halfway point of the letter. <laughs> I know, I know, it's quite hard actually to find any kind of link to go on from there. <laughs> We're at the half-time point in the letter. And we're now then into, if this is the big picture, if this is the opening credits of EastEnders, what is this like now in terms of life on the ground? Because Paul always does this. In the first half of his letters, Paul always gives us the theology. And then he says, so there are implications for how you've got to live. He does it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He does it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, here are the implications for your lives from what I've been saying. <coughs> so he begins, verse 1, chapter 4, as a prisoner for the Lord then. And actually prisoner, Paul is literally a prisoner. He's writing from prison, but he means it theologically as well. He's a prisoner for the Lord. 
He's given himself fully to the Lord. And actually, the Bible says that is the place where we experience true freedom. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And so just for starters, verse 2, that's to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And he says, make every effort to keep, guess what? The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul is under no illusion that living this out in the church community is going to require effort. Make every effort, he says. He says, we have a unity, that's what he goes on to say in the next three verses, but we have to work hard at maintaining it. Because it's precisely that unity we have in Christ that the powers and the principalities want to rob from us. So that actually, we don't bear the signs anymore of the victory that's Christ won, and we don't say to the world anymore, this is where the future's heading. So we have to make every effort to maintain, to work out the unity that we have. Why do we have this unity? Because, verse 4, there's one body, there's one spirit, you are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Do you see unity? (laughs) One. But, verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So, first key theme for the second half of the letter is diversity. Paul is saying, We are one, we have a unity of the Spirit, but that same Spirit empowers us in different ways. And I'm sure you've been looking at this in part in your series on the work of the Spirit. There is a unity in our diversity. Now that's not a surprise when we think about it, because our calling as the church is to reflect the very nature of God himself. And let's think about God himself. God is one. Yes, of course, there is one God. Absolutely core understanding of what it is uh, for Christians to worship. We worship one God. But that one God is made up through relationships of love between the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So there is a Trinitarian unity within God himself. The unity of Father, Son and Spirit who in their relationships together constitute the one God that Christians worship. So our calling in the church is to reflect both that unity but the diversity within that unity. So the church is not about a monochrome, slightly dull, boring uniformity. You know, the church is not meant to be like that uh, Star Wars movie. Um, what was the title? The, uh, the Attack of the Clones. <laughs> you know, <laughs> monochrome uniformity. <coughs> every single member exactly like the other. No. As Desmond Tutu says, we are called to be the rainbow people of God. The rainbow people of God. And Paul then outlines, well, what does this mean? And he looks at this in verses 8 to 13. And I won't read them now, but he picks up an image from Psalm 68, describing how at the end of a military campaign, the leader of the winning side is able to distribute the, the booty, the gifts, the rewards of the victory the spoils of victory to his followers. You might remember if you follow these things, about 18 months or so ago, there was a leadership contest uh, within the Conservative Party. And there were two Davids vying for the top position, David Cameron and David Davies. And when the outcome of that contest was decided, those who had loyally supported the winning uh, candidate, the winning David, uh, which of course was David Cameron, were rewarded with 
gifts and positions in the shadow cabinet. And it's that kind of an image that Paul is picking up here. He's saying that Jesus has triumphed over his enemies, the powers and principalities opposed to God's ways, and as he's ascended to that position of power at the right hand of God, he's now pouring out gifts, positions, to the people who are his followers. And he's pouring them out through the Holy Spirit. Often described as the five-fold ministries here in the church, but it's not an exclusive list of the giftings that God gives. But in verse 11, we read that, so what are these gifts that God gives through Christ? Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Verse 12, so that these people could do all the work themselves whilst everybody else in the church sits around (laughs) taking it easy. (laughs) Is that what it says? No, I haven't got a dodgy version of the Bible, don't worry, no. No, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, guess what? Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. What does that maturity look like? Well, Paul goes on to say that When we move from infancy to maturity, what we do is we begin to speak the truth in love. He says that in uh, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Bearing with one another for Paul doesn't mean anything goes. We have to just be completely inclusive in that regard for what's being suggested. We've got to bear with one another, we've got to be loving. Nor does it mean haranguing or forcing. He's saying it means speaking the truth in love. Not letting go of truth, but the way in which we seek to communicate and debate what that truth is, the posture we have as we do that, a posture of love, of bearing with one another, is every bit as important as the truth that we're seeking to uphold. And that's his description of what it means to move from infancy to maturity, speaking the truth in love. And that takes effort. That's why he says, make every effort. It takes effort to hold together a community of people. All the differences, backgrounds, cultures, viewpoints, takes effort. You know, there are massive debates. You know this going on in the Anglican Church at the moment. And I'm not going to get into that whole topic right now. But insofar as I understand it, and I understand what the Archbishop is trying to say, Archbishop Rowan Williams, I welcome the fact that he's putting a high, high emphasis on the way in which the debate is conducted. Because he's saying the manner in which the debate takes place is, is in one sense, as important as the issues that are being discussed. Because, what does the world think if Christians are not making every effort to bear with one another in love? In one sense, it reduces the message that on the cross, Christ has triumphed in such a way that the powers seeking to keep us in places of division and alienation have been overcome. It undermines that message. And that's why it does take effort, but it's worthwhile. Because in finding ways through to a unity in our diversity, we're doing nothing less than fulfilling our calling to reflect God's nature in the world the nature of the Trinitarian God. And that's such a high calling for us.
So that's the first theme, that's diversity. Second theme is purity, because really the rest of chapter 4 and most of chapter 5 is instructions for Christian living. It's about practical purity. And Paul is saying if ultimately the creation is heading towards a coherence, a harmony, an integrity, a unity through Christ, our calling now is to live lives here and now that line up with where the future is heading. Our lives are to resonate with the healing rhythm that's at work in the cosmos. And Paul in verses 17 through to 24 basically outlines two basic patterns of living. In verses 17 to 19 he outlines the downward spiral of sin, of selfish living. And then in uh, 20 to 24 he outlines the path of freedom out of that downward spiral in Christ. And I know that downward spiral into sin, into selfishness, I'm sure for many of us, certainly for me, has an all too familiar ring to it. John Stott has said in his commentary on Ephesians, it begins with hardness of heart, which leads to darkness of mind, which becomes deadness of soul, and ultimately ends in recklessness of life. That's the pattern Paul describes in verses 17 uh, to 19. And in this state, which the Bible says, however nice we are, without God, this is the state that we find ourselves in, Human beings who are made in the image of God become little more than what the Bishop of London once described as rapacious bipeds. (laughs) Devouring one another, devouring our material world, interested in consuming one another and consuming our material world. That's part of the debate that's going on at the moment about the environment. The effect that the activities and behaviours in some parts of the world are having on other parts of the world, particularly those who are most powerless and marginalised to do anything about it. So it's a gospel issue, the environment. And this state, John Stott outlines, I suppose, is the state which Oscar Wilde once described as that place where I can resist everything except temptation. We become enslaved to our appetites, we become stuck in our addictions, we are dead in our sins. That's the pretty grim reality the Bible paints of this downward spiral. But, says Paul, verse 20, that is not the way of life that you have learned in Christ. In Christ we put off the old life. And the image really here is it's like throwing out an old set of moth-eaten clothes. Throwing them out of the wardrobe and putting on new garments, new attitudes, new perspectives, new ways of seeing ourselves and seeing the world. Verse 23, he says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. And uh, just notice the contrast there between there and verse 18. The downward path of sin becomes with a darkening in their understanding and the upward path of freedom in Christ Verse 23 is being made new in the attitude of our minds. In one sense, Paul is saying this is the ultimate form of cognitive therapy. What he describes elsewhere as taking every thought captive for Christ. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. I've personally found it very helpful in the last couple of years to have uh, discovered a model, and it's only a model, it's nothing, there's nothing magical about it, but a model of praying which seeks to move us from these downward patterns that spoil our lives 
into the freedom that Christ offers us. And uh, it's a model that I think of as having four R's, and if it's a help to you, I offer it to you. The first R is recognizing where, in the light of what the Bible says, there are sinful, there are selfish patterns at work in my behavior. Recognizing them for what they are. And the second R is repenting of them. Uh, according to the Bible, repentance is not just something we do once to, to kind of get to know God, but it's a pattern of our lives of turning away from, confessing everything we know that is selfish and opposed to God's ways, everything that speaks of not trusting God in our lives. The third, so recognizing, repenting, renouncing, saying, I, wa- I want nothing more to do with these behaviors and these patterns in my life. And in fact, if there are any ways in which these powers and principalities are seeking to energize, these behaviours, these fault lines in my life, then I'm renouncing those too in Jesus' name and in the authority that I have. And I sometimes do that quite aggressively in my own private prayer space, not as I'm walking down the road because that might look a bit alarming to other people. <laughs> and then fourthly, and probably where really the bulk of the work takes place, the fourth are replacing, replacing those old patterns with God's word, God's truth. Putting on, as Paul says here, the new self. And if it helps encourage you, for me personally, there was a pattern of behaviour that I knew I was increasingly struggling to get out of, even though I wanted to, and which I increasingly felt enslaved by over a period of uh, a couple of years or more, which is I began to put into practice this, these four R's, which are no more than a, a model and outworking of what Paul describes here, of what Christ has made possible. I've tasted and begun to walk in the freedom that is being outlined in these verses in terms of that particular behaviour. Now notice when Paul talks about the downward spiral of sin, the sins that he particularly is drawing out in these verses are sins that damage the community because his whole emphasis is on the importance of unity. So verse 25 he says, Don't tell lies, speak the truth, because lies fragment the community. Verse 26, if you're angry, make sure it's not out of wounded pride or bad temper. There is a right place for anger at sin, at injustice. But the wrong kind of anger that festers gives the enemy a foothold in our lives and in our community. Notice again the way Paul sees this link. Verse 27, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. He's saying that there's something in our sinful behaviour that can open up an access point for these spiritual powers forces to energize and to maximize these selfish patterns within us. He's saying, don't, don't give them that room. Verse 28, don't steal, because you're robbing from the community, but make a contribution. You know, it's walking in the opposite spirit, it's, it's replacing, it's turning it around. Verse 29, don't tear people down with your words, but build people up. It's temple language that he's using, building people up. So he's saying he's particularly going after sins that destroy the community because his whole emphasis in this letter is the community is the witness to the world of what Christ has done. So we've got to safeguard it. And as if summing up in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. Brawling is really violent self-assertion along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And briefly, uh, I won't look at these in any detail, but in chapter 5, he goes on to also outline behaviours that undermine the emphasis on unity that Paul has in this letter. 
He goes on to talk about sexual relationships. He says, don't jump in and out of bed with each other. Why? Is it that Paul's a bit repressed? Doesn't he understand about life in 21st century London? Just the easygoing nature of things these days? No. It's because sex is the most intimate sign and expression of that unity. Two become one in marriage, the Bible says. And if in practice lots of different twos are becoming ones all over the place, then ultimately it's not surprising that our lives are not going to be in coherence with the unity, the harmony that Paul says is permeating all of the cosmos and the future to which we're heading. It's not surprising if we're going to increasingly feel our lives are out of tune with God's rhythms in our world. That's why he also goes on to say, don't get drunk. Why? Because Paul's boring, doesn't he understand about having a nice glass of wine? Sure, he's fine with that. But because becoming incoherent and disordered and drunk, out of alignment with ourselves, is the opposite of where we're headed. The beautiful coherence and order and alignment of all things under Christ. So what he's basically saying is, this is where the future's heading. Now in the power of the Spirit, live the life now that lines up with where we're headed. It's not just a random list of do's and don'ts that he suddenly gets onto here. These are ways of living now which cohere with where we're heading. And I want to say a word about grace at this point because it's quite easy to hear this sort of stuff and possibly feel quite condemned. Or And that's not my intention at all. All of us, of course, fall short. Me as much as any of us. And God is gracious and there's always a way back. And the way back, as I've been outlining, is recognising where we've gone wrong, saying sorry, repenting, renouncing, rebuking these things in my life and choosing to replace with the help of God by the power of his spirit receiving from him to be able to walk in the way that he'd call us to walk finally, final point harmony Paul in chapter 5 then turns his attention to the basic relational building blocks of his culture and it's worth noting in passing this isn't that the nuclear family but it's the extended household. And there were three sets of relationships involved in that extended household. And those were relationships between wives and husbands, between parents and children, and between masters and servants. And basically, and you can read more about this if you like, at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, Paul says, submit to one another, respect one another, love one another. In other words, cultivate harmonious relationships now because, once again, of the perfect harmony that is to come. Anticipate that future harmony now in your relationships. So to sum up, and as John Stott has put it on his uh, commentary to the Ephesians, and I put this quote on your notes, unity, diversity, purity and harmony. These the Apostle stresses as major characteristics of the new life and the new society in Christ. Now what I'm going to suggest we do, I'm conscious of really offering to you this morning quite a lot in a couple of sittings and thank you for being patient and bearing with that. What we're going to do is now go into some small groups as Tim outlined at the beginning of the session and First thing to say is, from my point of view, in the small groups, please feel free to talk about anything that struck you this morning that you would like to discuss, any issues that it's raised, any questions that you have. First and foremost, the group is a chance to 
respond and to discuss together and to learn from one another in response to some of what I've been presenting. But if you can, can I encourage you to make a bit of time for two other things? And these questions, again, are on the bottom of your notes. It would be great if you were able to spend a bit of time listing the ways in your group you can think of in which your church, St. Dionys, is a sign to the Parsons Green area of God's coming future. And to ask yourself the question, are there other things you would like to see emerge at St. Dee's which would be signs of God's future to Parsons Green? And part of my hope is that um, there'll be an opportunity when we come back later on this afternoon for perhaps one person in each group just to feed back some of the things that you talked about, some of the ideas that you had. And I think that would be a really interesting exercise to, to gather together some of our collective thinking around that. And thirdly, if you have time to get onto this, there's a slightly more personal application and it's taking you back really to um, what I mentioned in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul has a clear understanding of the role that he was called to play in God's big plan. He has that digression in the first half of Ephesians 3 and he says, you do understand, don't you, that that God has revealed to me my part in this big uh, plan that he's working out. And it's a personal question. You can either discuss it in the groups or perhaps you might even want to just take it away and reflect uh, this afternoon or in your own space. But to what extent do you feel you have a clear sense of the contribution you can make, perhaps in the church, in this church community, or in the wider sense of the world? I certainly don't want to, please hear me, I don't want to collapse vocation down to just what happens within the walls of the church. That's not what vocation is. We're called to live our lives to the glory of God, and that can happen in many, many settings. Some of us, including myself, including Tim, feel called by God to be set apart to work full-time within the walls of the church, so to speak. But that is not the calling of the majority of Christians. So please don't think that vocation is only to do with your service uh, in the church on a Sunday or midweek. But what in the world, what part are you playing in seeing this big plan that God is ushering in come to its fruition? And what is that big plan? Through Christ, to bring all things in heaven and on earth into unity. What Christ has made possible in his life, his death, his resurrection, the future to which we're absolutely definitely headed and which the Spirit comes to empower us to live now in anticipation together as his people of that future reality. (coughs) Small groups and lunch I think is served at one o'clock.